Could you please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 17? There are certain portions of prophetic scripture that must have felt so unlikely to be fulfilled throughout different times in history. It gets read and people think, how in the world could that actually happen? Now, I'm not questioning that prophecy will be fulfilled. Okay, you don't have to pick up your pitchforks and chase me away. Okay, God's word will be fulfilled. That's my conviction. But certain prophetic texts throughout history have required a lot of faith because it seems impossible in the present environment that one is reading it. But often as time progresses, things unfold in a certain way that makes one think, I can actually see how that could be possible. And that makes sense because all history is moving toward God's ordained end. And our text for tonight is one such prophecy. Revelation 17, it's all about a one world religion in the tribulation period. And at different times throughout history, that looked incredibly unlikely. There has been wars and rumors of wars because of religious differences. Many lives lost because of religious beliefs. There has been, there continues to be, all kinds of tension and division in the realm of religion. And hence, a one-world religion at times has sound quite far-fetched. How does the Roman Catholic Church, Islam, Buddhism, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Judaism, unsaved Protestants, all unite as one? For most of history, that has seemed quite unlikely. And yet it's very interesting that over the last 30 years, there have been drastic advances that make the one world religion look quite plausible. Now, tonight, I'm not going to suggest what or who I think will be the one world religion. I think we can fall into unhelpful speculation very easily. And and we need to guard against that, particularly those who hold to the premillennial view of eschatology. We can get stuck down these rabbit holes, and we can be more dogmatic than the Bible is. We need to be careful. But nevertheless, it's certainly far more obvious today how a one-world religion could come about. Much groundwork has been done. To use a building analogy, the block has been purchased. The architect has drawn up the plans. Council approval's been granted, excavation's been done, the foundations are laid, and the frame is starting to get constructed. Much progress has occurred. And here are just a couple of examples. Okay, when you think of the buzzwords of today's society, what comes to mind? The two for me, tolerance and inclusivity. Perfect for a one-world religion. A one-world religion headquarters has been built in Abu Dhabi. It's described as an interfaith complex. And there's a mosque, a church, and a synagogue in the same location. I'm not sure how that works, but it's real. There's an organization known as the URI. This is part of the United Nations, and it stands for the United Religious Initiative. There's also a huge push from the Roman Catholic Church that says the protest 
of the Protestant movement, it's over. Okay, that, that's finished. And now we are just one Catholic church. That's what they're advocating. In 1999, a document was signed where the Lutherans and the Catholics agreed to a shared doctrinal position on justification. Poor old Luther would be rolling around in his grave in disgust. Pope Francis has advocated that Muslims and Christians serve the same God. That's what he's declaring. He's agreed with evolution and he's jumped on the climate change bandwagon. Why? Because that's a cause that can unite the world. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that the Roman Catholic Church is the one world religion. I merely want to make the point that for a lot of history, this looked so unlikely. And yet right now, much progress has been made. What we have recorded in Revelation 17 is much easier to see how it could unfold compared to other times in history. And that serves as a vivid reminder for us that history is moving toward God's ordained end. Now, with all of that said, I'd like to pray and then we'll get into our text. So let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you particularly tonight for the prophetic word. And uh, we do ask that you would help us as we study uh, this chapter. And that uh, we do ask for the assistance and enabling of the Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Oh, Karl Marx, uh, not someone who I'd usually quote in a sermon, uh, but he famously said this. He said, religion is the opium of the people. Okay, religion is the opium of the people. And there's a certain element of truth in that remark. Mankind is incurably religious. And the reason for that is that God created mankind in his image and likeness. We're told that in Genesis chapter 1. Mankind is made to have a relationship with God, to be in fellowship with him. All mankind are created worshippers. Understand, this is part of who we are. We don't just worship, but we are worshippers. Okay, this is part of our identity. This is how we're made up. And all mankind will inevitably worship someone or something. That's true of everyone. And it will either be the one true and living God or it will be some God of our own making. And from the beginning of time, Satan has gone about offering counterfeits, offering various replacements to fill this worship void in our hearts. And his ultimate goal is to get mankind to stop worshipping God and to worship him. And he has many ways that he proposes to satisfy man's longing of spirituality all without the one true and living God. You know, Satan's a bit like a lolly shop. You walk in, you see all of these amazing lollies. It looks incredible. Okay, there's the Jersey caramels, the licorice, the mustics, the snakes, the red clouds, the pink clouds, the purple clouds, the sour worms, whatever lollies you like, they're all there. And these represent the different ways that he proposes to satisfy that this deep yearning of spirituality. Okay, to, to fill that God-shaped hole in our lives and often 
His ways look so appealing. The problem is the lollies won't work and they're doused with varying deadly poisons. And Satan has gone about playing on mankind's bent toward religion for all of history. And hence it's little surprise that this will play a major role in the tribulation period. In fact, in the tribulation, this is the culmination of his previous ploys. Because in the tribulation period, the smorgasbord of the world's religions will become one great world religion. And this will be essential in the campaign of the Antichrist. And this is what we have recorded for us in Revelation chapter 17. It contains the spiritual nature of Antichrist's kingdom. Whereas chapter 18 speaks to the political and economic aspects of his kingdom. And they're both identified in these two chapters as Babylon. You'll see that throughout and I'll say more about that shortly. Now before we delve into the particulars of the text, I'd like to give you some general points that I trust will help us understand this portion of scripture okay so five quick points number one this is not chronological so chapters 17 and 18 don't fit chronologically with the unleashing of the seventh bowl judgments which concludes chapter 16 but rather the historical chronology continues in chapter 19 with the second coming of christ okay so the unleashing of the seventh vile judgment okay then christ will return. So in these two chapters, the chronology halts from God's judgment to focus on the Antichrist world empire, which is the target of the judgments. But it seems highly likely that the events recorded in chapter 17, they fit in the first half of the tribulation period, okay, the first three and a half years. Number two, this chapter has two parts. Okay, the first six verses are a vision that John receives. It's one of the angels who is responsible for unleashing one of the seven bowl judgments that gives the vision, verse one. And the big idea of the vision is also revealed in verse one. It's the judgment of the great whore. Okay, so that's the central theme of this chapter. Now, the second part of this chapter commences at verse 7, and it provides some interpretation of the vision, but the focus in the second half is more on the Antichrist. Okay, number three, it fits with the following chapter. Okay, chapters 17 and 18, they fit together. Okay, they're pieces of the same puzzle. They both speak of Babylon, and as already mentioned, chapter 17, that it focuses on the spiritual, the religious, or the ecclesiastical, whereas... Chapter 18 focuses on the political and the economic. And number four, there's a comparison presented. Notice in verse one, the angel says, come hither, I will show unto thee. This exact phrase is repeated one other time in the book of Revelation. It's in chapter 21 and verse nine. Now it's interesting, in that verse, it's one of the angels who carried one of the seven vials who's speaking. Okay, so same as our text. And the angel says, come hither, I will show thee. Okay, identical phraseology. 
And it continues, okay, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Okay, that's the church. So there's a comparison presented here between the true church, Revelation 21, and the apostate church, Revelation 17, that's personified as a whore. Okay, so we have this comparison at play. And then number five, there are difficult elements. There are some things that are quite difficult to determine and comprehend in this chapter. In fact, if you look down at verse 9, we're told, Here is the mind which hath wisdom. What that means is that great wisdom is required to correctly understand this vision and its subsequent explanation. And it's like the author here is warning us. It's like a road sign. It's warning us of pending dangers. There are some difficulties for us to comprehend. But my goal tonight is for us to not get too lost in the difficult elements. But I want us to have a grasp of the overall sense and flow of the text. Okay, that, that's what I want, rather than getting lost in the intricate details. So with those general points stated, they're going to function like guardrails. Okay, they're going to stop us from driving off the cliff, God willing, as we make our journey through this text. So with the guardrails concreted in, we can commence our journey considering the one world religion of the tribulation period. And the approach that I'd like to take, it's very simple. I want to introduce to you the main characters, and then I want to share the storyline. And at the end of our journey, we'll finish with some lessons for our Christian lives. So firstly, let's consider the main characters. Now, in this chapter, there are two main characters and one minor character. We've met two of these characters previously in the book of Revelation, but there is one new character. Now, the two that we've met previously are the Antichrist and the Ten Kings. We first met the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, and there he was identified as the beast. And when we worked our way through that chapter, we determined that for him to be called the Antichrist, it meant two things. So he is one who is against Christ, but he's also one who is seeking to replace Christ. Okay, but both of those things are true. So he is the satanic agent entrusted to overthrow and replace the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will be a world leader like none other. And he will rise to prominence and power in the tribulation. We meet the beast in our text in verse 3. We're told that the woman is sitting on a scarlet-colored beast. So this is the Antichrist. And that reveals to us that there is a partnership between the beast and this woman. They use each other to advance their own personal agendas. Now, this is only a brief mention, and there's much more detail about the Antichrist in the second section of this chapter, particularly in verses 8 and 11. And it's in here where there's a lot of tricky details to work through. Now, in verse 8, what seems to be in mind here, as John is writing, it's likely the resurrection of the Antichrist. We saw this back when we considered him previously. Now, we need to remember the Antichrist is a copycat Jesus. 
And in the tribulation, he will have his own resurrection. Okay, this could be a pseudo one, so it's fake, it's a sleight of hand, or it could be that God allows it to happen. But this is what caused people to be amazed by him. Okay, this is why people flocked to him. And that seems to be what's conveyed by the phrase, the beast that was and is not and yet is. And we're also reminded in verse 8 that he is empowered by Satan. Now, another character that we meet is the Ten Kings, and they're the minor characters in this story. And again, we have already come across them in our study. You'll notice in verse 12 that in John's vision, he saw ten horns, and they represented ten kings. And the text tells us that these kings had not yet ruled when John saw his vision. But we're told they would rule with the beast. So these kings, along with the beast, will form the last dominant world empire. Notice in verse 10, it speaks of seven kings. Okay, five have fallen, one is, and one is to come. Now, it seems best to view this as dominant world empires. That's consistent with the book of Daniel. So five have fallen prior to John. Okay, they being Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and the Greeks. Then the text talks about the one who is, okay, that's Rome. They were the dominant empire when John was writing. And then there's one to come. Okay, this will be during the tribulation. There will be these ten kings who will rule with the Antichrist. And they are the minor characters in this account. Now the third character we're introduced to is this woman. And she's identified as that great whore in verse 1. It's not a very flattering description. But, you know, we need to understand this does not mean that she's a literal whore, but rather this is speaking of her spiritual harlotry. She's a representative of this counterfeit religious movement. Okay, throughout the Old Testament, prostitution, fornication, and adultery, it's often used to speak of idolatry and religious apostasy. And with that background in mind, that helps us to understand this woman. And this point of view that I'm putting forward is further confirmed in verse 1. Because if you remember, I pointed out previously that the phrase, Come hither, I will show thee, it's used in one other place in this book, and it's about the bride of Christ. It's about the church. So here she is to be viewed as the apostate church. That this woman is the epitome of spiritual fornication. And she leaves the world in the pursuit of false religion. Okay, so she's a symbol for a system of false religion that will woo the whole world in the tribulation period. Now if you look at verse 5, uh, in this vision, John saw a name written on her forehead. Now, this could be a mark similar to the mark of the beast, or it could be a reference to a Roman custom where harlots wore a headband with their name on it. And the name is revealed in verse 5. It's Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Okay, well, what are we to make of this name? Okay, the, the word mystery, that's not part of the name. And this word mystery, it's a term that we encounter in various other places in the New Testament. 
And when we see this word, it speaks of something that was not before revealed or understood. Okay, so in the Old Testament, the church is referred to as a mystery. With that in mind, this cannot be referring to the literal city of Babylon, because that was not a mystery. Okay, people were aware of the city. So what does this name mean? What seems to be a religious designation okay that the woman corresponds religiously to what babylon was religiously okay well we're told she is the mother of all false religion okay this babylon is the symbol of all worldly resistance to god okay it's this system of godlessness that that leads people away from the worship of the one true and living god and here it's described as great, okay, Babylon the Great, because of its far-reaching impact. This will be a worldwide religion. And referring to this movement that, that will lead the people away from God as Babylon makes much sense when the Old Testament is considered. Because Babylon is associated with organized idolatry, blasphemy, and persecution of God's people. Now, one author offered this summary. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's helpful. He said, The subject of Babylon in the Scripture is one of the prominent themes of the Bible, beginning in Genesis 10, where the city of Babel is first mentioned, with continued references throughout the Scriptures climaxing in the book of Revelation. From these various passages, it becomes clear that Babylon in Scripture is the name for a great system of religious error. Babylon is actually a counterfeit or pseudo-religion which plagued Israel in the Old Testament, as well as the church in the New Testament. It will once again become the world's leading city religiously, as well as commercially and politically as the end draws near. Her role as the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth makes her the progenitor of everything anti-Christian. This includes all false religions. The Genesis 11 passage tells us where it all began with the building of the tower that became a forerunner of the world's idolatrous practices throughout history. So the metropolis that functions as headquarters for the beast empire has a long reputation for its anti-God stance. It is a city, but it's also a vast religious system that stands for everything that God does not tolerate. And in the outline, I've listed varying Old Testament references about Babylon that connect with these two chapters you can have a look at those in your own time. So this woman symbolizes a religious system that brings the world together under one religious banner. This final world religion depicted as a harlot, it will be an anti-Christian religious system that will seduce the world's population away from true religion. And this woman who personifies this movement is the main character of this vision. So with the characters introduced, let's now consider the storyline of this vision. The theme of this vision is stated clearly in verse 1. We're told the judgments of the great whore, who we have established to be the false one-world religion identified as Babylon. So the Lord is going to plant the explosives and blow this false religion to smithereens. Because he will not tolerate such idolatry. 
But before the destruction of this religious system occurs, we're given what is a graphic and symbolic description of it and the vital role that it will play in the unfolding tribulation period. Now, John sees this great whore sitting upon many waters, verse 1. Now, it's interesting that this corresponds with the city of Babylon. Jeremiah, speaking of Babylon, says, O thou that dwellest upon many waters. And this geographical feature likely came to John's mind. But according to verse 15 of our text, the waters symbolize the peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Okay, and there's a principle there. If we're trying to determine what something means, read the verses that follow. It could give us a hint, or if not, look elsewhere in Scripture. So right here, it speaks of the world's population over whom she has control. And this is fleshed out in verse 2. Okay, the kings of the earth, the world leaders, they chase after this false religion. They're guilty of spiritual fornication. But it's not just the powerful. It's not just the influential because verse 2 continues. The inhabitants of the earth have consumed the wine of her fornication, that they're intoxicated, that they're under the control of this false religion. Okay, so, so understand that there is this worldwide pursuit and embracing of the same religion like never before. And just about everyone will be drawn in. It's like a super powerful magnet. And mankind are the metal that are drawn to it. And people who have historically been religious enemies will be united. And that's going to be astonishing. Okay, think about this. Those who hold to Islam, to Judaism, to Buddhism, to Hinduism, to Sikhism, to Mormonism, and any other ism, okay, atheism, agnosticism, whatever you can think of. Anyone who refuses Christ, they will be attracted to this immoral lover of false religion. Such will be the destruction, such will be the the devastation of the tribulation period. When when the Lord finally unleashes the shackles and his wrath is released, that people will be looking for comfort. People will be looking for answers. People will be looking for hope. And isn't it interesting that mankind turns to religion that this is what they flock to to the solution in their darkest times why is that why why turn to religion well it's because we're created by god in the image of god to be in relationship and fellowship with god that this is how we're wired and hence this worldwide flocking to this false Religion, like flies to a dead carcass, makes perfect sense. Now, during this religious campaign at the start of the tribulation, a movement that experiences astonishing success, we're told in verse 3 that John is moved to the wilderness in his vision. This is a desolate place, quite a fitting location. And he sees something very interesting. Something that's very important. This is a key detail in the storyline. 
this woman, this false religion is on a scarlet-colored beast. And this is the Antichrist. So what we learn here from verse 3 is that there's a partnership between the Antichrist and this great whore. So, so there is this joining together of politics and religion. The one world government, the one world religion that they have been wedded. They're supporting each other. And it's interesting that at the beginning, the harlot seems to be using the Antichrist to further her cause. Notice she is on the Antichrist, using him. And at the start, she seems to be more influential and the multitudes flock to this apostate church. Now in verse 4, there's a description of apparel and accessories. And it's interesting that the description of the great city of Babylon in verse 16 of the next chapter, it's very similar. But it seems likely that this description is meant to be contrasted with the apparel of the bride of the Lamb, the true church. Because in chapter 19 and verse 8, her apparel is described as fine linen, clean and white. So again, that there is this comparison. And perhaps an illustration is helpful here. You know, traditionally, this doesn't seem to be the practice anymore. Okay, but the wedding dress okay, is, is white. But if the lady was known to be immoral, and she wasn't pure, traditionally she was not allowed to wear a white dress. Okay, you'd have to wear a different color as a symbol of her impurity. And that's the idea here. That the one true church, the bride of Christ, is arrayed in these pure white garments. Okay? In other words, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But this false religion is dressed in these scarlet and purple clothes. But it's also worth noting that these clothes were expensive. Okay? She's decked out with gold and precious stones. So in other words, it looks impressive. People will be drawn in through the lust of the eyes and will appeal to the flesh. Okay, we're all wired the same way. And they will consume the contents of the golden cup, verse 4. It's interesting, Jeremiah used the golden cup to picture a degrading influence of Babylon of those around her. And that's the sense here. She, she leads the world into spiritual prostitution. And, and the world is ensnared in her sticky web of seduction. And those who aren't seduced have their lives made very difficult. Okay, the true followers of Jesus Christ identified as the saints in verse 6. Remember, there will be a believing remnant in the tribulation. And they will experience intense persecution. You know, this great harlot will unleash brutal oppression on all those who do not submit under the banner of this one world religion. She will unleash great violence and will endeavor to exterminate all the redeemed because they refuse to embrace this false religion. But my friend, think about it. How, how astonishing. What, whatever form it takes, what, whatever the mechanics look like, it's religion that will unite the world like never before witnessed. All previous barriers and prejudices will be smashed to pieces as just about all embrace this one religion. The vast majority will be seduced by this spiritual harlot. This is what they choose to pursue. 
instead of embracing the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. That's the decision they're faced with. And the vast majority choose the harlots. Oh, the folly of mankind. But just like all good stories, uh, there's a plot twist. Okay, things are looking positive. People have come under the banner of this one world religion. They've embraced what it has to offer. That there's this harmony between politics and religion. But at the height of its success, the Antichrist launches a vicious and violent campaign against this worldwide religion. And this is what's recorded in the second half of this chapter. That the Antichrist ends up turning on the harlots. Okay, that they had been working together. But at the right time, the Antichrist turned on her, stuck the knife in her back. So, so he used religion for his purposes and then he discarded it. You know, just like a real harlot, a man doesn't love her, but rather she gets used by the man to gain what he wants and then is quickly discarded. This is what unfolds in the text. And what happens is that the ten kings in verse 12, they will receive power with the Antichrist. Now I want you to notice that it's only for one hour So in other words, it's for a short period of time. And they support the beast, verse 13. And what this resulted in, according to verse 16, is they ended up hating the whore. That they turn on her, that they destroy this religion. And eventually it's replaced with the worship of the Antichrist. So he does what is prophesied in Daniel chapter 11. He presents himself as God. And Antichrist worship becomes the replacement religion. But this is a classic attack from the inside. The harlot thought the Antichrist was an ally, but it will be him that destroys this one world religion. But what's fascinating is that in verse 17, this is all God's plan. Notice it says, God put it in their hearts. Okay, this is referring to the ten kings. He, he put it in their hearts that they support the Antichrist. And then they will be used as agents to destroy this wicked one world religion. And as I thought about this, I thought how amazing that even this Antichrist, okay, that, that this one who thinks he's so special, so amazing, he sets himself up as the God replacement He's seeking to usurp God. See the irony here. But but what is he? All that he is is a means of God's providence. That's it. And nothing more. He's used by God to bring about his plans and purposes. And the news gets even better because in verse 14, the Antichrist and the ten kings, they bite off a bit more than they can chew. They're successful in destroying the one world religion, but now they decide to pick a fight with Jesus Christ. And they will not be successful when they come against Christ. They will be overcome. They will be destroyed. Why? Because Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who he is. And his identity ensures his victory. Jesus will win. And according to verse 14, all who are called, chosen and faithful, that's speaking of Christians, those whose names are written in the book of life, will be with him think about that if you're a christian you will be with him and we will watch our king destroy his enemies 
We, we will watch him reign victorious. Right or wrongs, my friend, Jesus will win. That's assured. Nothing can alter that. And in light of that, I, I trust tonight that you know for sure that you are on team Jesus, that you're on the winning side, that, that you will be with him when he returns and defeats all of his enemies. How, how do you be on team Jesus? Well, for that to happen, you need to repent of your sin, acknowledge it, turn from it, and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he's God and that he died for your sin on the cross and that he rose again on the third day. You know, I trust you know Christ as your Savior, for that's the only way that you can be with Jesus and be on the winning team. My friend, this is what history is heading towards Jesus will ultimately crush the Antichrist. He'll crush the harlot. All of his enemies will be defeated and he will reign supremely. But please understand this point. If you remain against Jesus, you too will be crushed in hell forever and ever. Okay? As an enemy of Jesus, which is what you are, if you haven't come to him as savior, you will endure eternal defeat. No one defeats Jesus. So this is Revelation chapter 17 that records the destruction of the harlot, the one identified as Babylon, which symbolizes the one world religion. The next chapter will continue to deal with Babylon, but the focus will shift to the political and the economic, and that's where we'll pick it up next week. But for tonight, having considered the characters and the storyline, how does this apply to our lives? Okay, well, we understand this is in the future. Okay, this is talking about in the tribulation period. The church won't be here. And hence, how does it apply to our lives right now? Okay, well, here are three ways that the text applies to us right now. Number one. It's possible to use religion for selfish reasons. It's possible to use religion for selfish reasons. In the text, the Antichrist used religion to help him gain what he desired, and then he discarded it. He put it in the trash as soon as it gave him what he wanted. Religion for him was really a means to an end. And this is something that we need to be aware of in the church. Okay, we, we need to be careful that we don't become such people and we need to guard against such people infiltrating the church. Now, how could this play out? Now, of course, it happens in more subtle ways than the Antichrist. I don't think any of us here are trying to use the church as a means to gain world domination. If you are, Condal Park Bible Church is not the right church. Yeah, you're not going to gain world power through us. But there are ways that we can use the church for selfish reasons. And here's what I mean. Some people will only come to church in order to have a relationship with a boy or a girl. Okay, this is the main reason, sometimes the only reason that one attends church. That there's a facade of spirituality in order to get what they really want, and that's the relationship that is using the church for selfish reasons and often once they've got the relationship guess what happens 
you don't see them again. So this may be something that you need to guard against, and as a church, we need to be alert of such dangers and seek to protect others. Okay, we can use church as a means to have friends. Okay, that this is the reason why you come. It's purely social. It, it meets that need in your life. Now, hopefully it does, but that should not be the only reason you come to church. Okay, church may lead to you getting work or help advance your career. People at church often support each other. You know, I know of a builder who used to bounce between churches depending on what congregation had the most young couples because that would result in more new houses for him. True story. It happens. No church, and it wasn't my family. I just better clarify that. It wasn't my dad. It wasn't my grandfather. That could have been bad. You know, church may provide an opportunity for you to lead to, to satisfy a hunger for power, it may provide help with your children, it may supply your needs, and we could go on and on. And this is something that we all need to search our own hearts. We can use the church for purely selfish reasons. We, we can have the spirit of Antichrist in subtle ways. And this is not something that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps there's something that the Holy Spirit has put his finger on in your life. Maybe you weren't even aware of it until right now. Okay, if this is you, repent, and by God's grace, change. And may we all guard our own hearts and guard our church, because this is a real danger. Number two, we are all designed for God, but are we walking with God? You know, the fact that there is a worldwide religion is clear evidence confirming the teaching of the Bible that we're all created in the image and likeness of God. That's true of you, it's true of everyone. And part of what that means is that we are spiritual beings and we are made for fellowship and relationship with God. We are worshippers. This is part of our DNA and that cannot be altered. We all worship someone or something. There's no exceptions. There is not a person in this world, past, present or future, who doesn't worship. We are all designed with a God-shaped hole in our heart, and the question is for us, who or what are we worshipping? Are we walking with the Lord? Are we close to him? Or are we chasing some cheap and nasty substitute that has become a God replacement in our lives? And this can happen even for Christians to our great shame. It's possible to live for other things. It's possible for us to worship something else, to pursue material gain, to pursue relationships, career, pleasure, entertainment, much more than we do God. You know, we are created for God. We're created to be in a relationship with Him. Okay, that, that's the created purpose to be with God and enjoy him forever. We're all worshippers, but the question for each of us is this. Am I walking with the Lord? Am I pursuing him? Is he my heart's greatest desire? Or am I pursuing something else? Now, am I being wooed and seduced by the world? 
Has some spiritual whore got my attention? If this is you, my friend, again, repent. Turn to the Lord. He will forgive. In fact, he will be thrilled that you have returned to him. And live out your designated purpose to live with God and to enjoy him both now and forever. Don't pursue some cheap and nasty replacement. And Sydney is full of them. They're all around us, my friend. Be aware. And number three, our God is in control of it all and Jesus will win. Okay, this is good news. The text is clear that God is orchestrating events. All of history is moving toward God's ordained end. Even here in the text, the Lord uses these ten kings and even the Antichrist as a means of providence to accomplish his will. And think about that. That's a, that's a very comforting reality. Because in our lives, in our world, and with things to come, God's in control of it all. Whether it's the big, massive, worldwide events, or, or whether it's the small minuscule things in your life the good things and the bad things he's in control of that and he is using everything to bring this world to his designed end and understand nothing can frustrate that nothing can prevent it from happening and sure there may be times when our world looks like a real mess i'm sure you would agree it does at the moment Things don't look good, but rest assured, the Lord is reigning, that the Lord is ruling over the affairs of men. His plans, his purposes are being worked out in this world and in your lives. And my friend, understand, ultimately, ultimately, King Jesus will win. Jesus will defeat all of his enemies. Jesus will right all wrong. Jesus will reign because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you know Jesus Christ as your king, you will be with him forever. And it will be perfect. Jesus will win. Jesus will make everything right. That's how the story concludes. And there is nothing more certain. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for your uh, prophetic word. I'm the first to acknowledge that this is certainly not an easy uh, passage of Scripture uh, to to walk through. Uh, I do pray that we would at least understand this a little bit clearer tonight. And I do pray that there would be something uh, for us to to take home, to apply to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite Jason to lead us in the singing of our final hymn.